This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space, a live show devoted to subjects that are hard to talk about because they make us feel uncomfortable, vulnerable, ashamed, or afraid. Tonight's show is part of an ongoing series about men's sexuality. My guest tonight is Dr. Erwin Goldstein, and our topic is everything you wanted to know about sexual difficulties in men but did not know who to ask. Dr. Goldstein is the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Sexual Medicine. He's the former president of the Sexual Medicine Society of North America, and he currently serves as the director of sexual medicine at the University of California at San Diego. He's authored over 350 articles about sexual dysfunction and has conducted research in this field since the late 1970s. I am honored to have you as my guest, Dr. Goldstein. And thank you so much for this opportunity. We don't get to speak sexual medicine very often on public airways. There's uh, an embarrassment, humiliation factor. So that's right. I'm honored to be here, and uh, this is great. Great. It's my mission to undo that. Well, it's <laughs> so, our mission, too. Good. Well, we're on the we same team. Together. That's right. <laughs> so I want to ask by asking you, start by asking you to sort of define the scope of the problem for, for men, sexual difficulties in men. You know, just even approximately, how widespread uh, are, is it to have some kind of sexual difficulty? So uh, to answer your question, some sexual difficulties, you're looking at buff, roughly about a third of men around 33% of men will have a sexual difficulty, but only about a quarter, maybe 30% of that, have distress from the sexual problem. Some people have sexual problems, and they sort of retire from sex. They uh, find it uh, just as easy to be involved in horse racing or sports or other uh, uh, activities. And uh, so, so in the practitioner's perspective, the, the perspective that I come from, um, um, we see a third or quarter of a third of the population. That's a lot of millions of people, though. <laughs> oh, no kidding. And I want to also ask about the demographics. How much of this has to do with age? Well, there's uh, a, a paradigm, a little paradox, I mean, of uh, as one gets older, one has more chances of having sexual problems. But on the other hand, one has less problems with stress over having the sexual problems when one's older. So we actually see from the practitioner's perspective the the person seeking medical care is typically in his 40s and 50s and whereas we see men at age 18 to age 90 uh, there are fewer 18 year olds and fewer 90 year olds than there are 40 and 50 year olds. That makes sense and so is that partly that transition that that, that group is going through a more a sort of a real change in their sexual function, and that's why there's more distress. I guess it's about expectations, and I guess it's about uh, past capabilities. Uh, um, certainly, it's unusual for a man to have sexual problems uh, in the teens and twenties and thirties, although plenty do. Um, and when one starts to lose that function, one starts to lose that function earlier than other functions. For example. You're, if you're going to have a liver problem or a kidney or a spleen or a pancreas or a lung problem, that's later in life. One of the first things that goes in an aging man's life is, is his sexual function. The arteries to the penis are only one, one millimeter. So if you're going to have some sort of blockage artery situation, for example, the heart artery is uh, three to four millimeters, uh, uh, so uh, so you, you know, have hardening of the arteries in reverse here, yeah. 
uh, you're going to see erection problems representing a vascular disease as an early barometer, the earliest barometer, really, of any medical problem. So it, it affects uh, usually so-called healthy people who think they don't have anything wrong with them, and this is their first uh, sign of, of a medical problem. So maybe it's sort of like the proverbial canary in the mine in a way, <laughs> letting you know, okay, you have to, your, your vascular health is at risk. Pay attention. Well, it's, you know, you've heard of the word angina, uh, cardiac angina. Right, so that's chest pain. So this is penis angina, and, and the, the, the dilemma is that most physicians and most uh, patients don't recognize a problem with erection performance as an expression of an early vascular disease. They just sort of say, oh, I'm tired, and oh, I'm not interested in this person, or oh, I drank too much, or whatever. And, and they just write it off, and then, you know, X number of years later, they got their heart attack, and that's when people start taking them seriously. Right, so if someone in their 40s or 50s starts having, say, erectile difficulties, does that suggest that they should have further workup to look in their overall vascular health? If I could, if I could make one message clear in this next half hour, yes, 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 and yes. Interesting. Um, that the evaluation, is news to me. of course, should include a psychologist because there's a lot of psychological reasons for this. Right. Uh, but absolutely, biologic evaluations looking for early forms of vascular disease would be paramount on the list. And so to the extent that aging is really associated with penile health, is that the main reason due to ar- the, the, the health of the arteries, or are there other things that go with aging that contribute to erectile dysfunction? Well, I mean, you know, there are psychological issues associated with aging. Uh, um, one loses one's, uh, one starts gaining weight, and one's losing one's, uh, you know, one's ego is challenged. Uh, 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 older people losing their jobs faster than younger people because they cost more to companies. So there's a lot of financial and psychosocial issues. Uh, women are um, saying, it's now my turn. Uh, the kids are out of the house. I want a job. I want a life. And there's a lot of stuff going on at that time in a person's life. But on the other end, there are hormonal issues. Uh, the man's testosterone is now falling. There's, uh, there's neurologic issues, and there's vascular issues. So the, the three prime physical issues are under stress at that time in a man's life. Okay, so you're saying neurologic, hormonal, and vascular. Those are the three prime players in sexual function. Okay, so let's. So we've talked a little bit about vascular. Let's talk a little bit more about hormonal. Um, you know, we talk about menopause, but is there is there an andropause for men? Well, actually, there's no reason why we don't call it menopause too. I mean, in the same context, the word "man" works perfectly well here. Okay. <laughs> menopause. So the thing is, uh, uh, if you follow the testosterone level of men and look at longitudinal cohorts, so that you just follow a group over time. Um, the, the the testosterone value falls in a range of 1.5%. So per annum. So let's say a man's testosterone value was 400 at age uh, 40. At age 41, it's 1.5% less. At age 42, it's 3% less. At age 50, it's 15% less. And you go on and on. It's a linear decay over time. And, and when does that when does that decay begin? At what age? At age 40. Okay, so starting at age 40, your testosterone starts to go down. Well, teleologically, it makes sense because, uh, you know, a woman's ovary at age 40 isn't all that perfect for having uh, uh, the opportunity for reproduction. And basically, we're all about maintaining the species. So if a woman isn't 
ovaries aren't that needed, then a man's testosterone isn't all that needed after that age. Right. It's amazing how much less we hear about that, though. <laughs> you know, it's striking. Uh, there's a lot of emphasis on hormones now. Actually, uh, what's sort of fascinating is if you look at the drug industry and you look at you know chemotherapy drugs or antihypertensive drugs or uh, even Viagra kinds of drugs or antibiotic kinds of drugs, and you look at the growth of a specific class of drug over the last several years, which drug has had 15 20% growth per year, each year over the last several years, the only drug that meets that is testosterone for men. Well, I thought it was psychotropic medications. <laughs> testosterone <laughs> for men is the number one growth uh, pharmaceutical product. I was unaware of that. That's really so striking. the fact that testosterone falls and can be replaced like a woman's estrogen, um, um, it's just so logical and, and so, uh, so missed. <laughs> but there's another menopause in both men and women, and that's thyroid. Thyroid function decreases, and there's an awful lot of people with low thyroid that have symptoms of consistent with menopause. That could be easily managed by thyroid replacement. So we look at three major hormone systems going down. For women, it's the ovaries. For men, it's the testes. And for both men and women, it's the thyroid. And are there any sexual consequences to low thyroid? Uh, huge. Uh, there's even sexual consequences to high thyroid. Uh, I guess at the end of the day, uh, sex is a barometer for overall health. Right. And people with all kinds of health issues re really express their health problems as low interest, low arousal, low orgasm, or even pain during sex. Right. Okay, so that, that moves me to the third of the three that you were mentioning that you see as most important physiologically, neurological. What, what are the neurologic changes with age that affect sexual function? Well, I mean, sens sensitivity to nipples, sensitivity to clitoris, labia, sensitivity to penis falls with age. Uh, our mood and our memory and all that changes with age. Um, our ability to be more depressed in increases with age. Um, we, we now get into diseases as we get older, like diabetes. The, 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 the prevalence of diabetes in this country because of obesity is sort of in an exploding context, and diabetes uh, is one of many medical conditions that adversely affects nerve function. So... Uh, and then we get into the fact that when men get older, they have prostate cancer, and in many men, one of the treatments for prostate cancer is surgical removal of the prostate, and in that operation, for whatever reason, we have great difficulty surgically sparing those nerves, and those nerves get cut during that operation. And there's, you know, literally tens of thousands of men who have sexual problems because those nerves are cut during that kind of surgery. Right, and then, of course, often they're treated with anti-testosterone drugs as well. Which uh, further complicate the issue in, in a great way, yes. Right. This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne. This is Safe Space, and I'm talking to Dr. Erwin Goldstein about sexual dif difficulties in men. And you bring up the topic of diabetes, which I want to come back to. Um, tell me a little bit more about how diabetes affects sexual health. I you mentioned it impacts neurologic functioning. I assume it's also affecting the vascular health, the arteries to the penis as well. And, of course, the hormones. So it affects all three, and it affects the psychology. It, affects, it, it makes somebody uh, have you know, uh, tiredness, fatigue, less self-image, less uh, ego, less confidence. Uh, so it's, a, it's a really uh, not good for sexual activity. 
right. in, in both men and women uh, who have diabetes, their sexual function will easily be demonstrated to be reduced. And how, um, how does it affect the hormones? Well, uh, a very common cause uh, of uh, diabetes in aging men is what we call metabolic syndrome, where they, they sort of get heavy. And uh, um, the heaviness releases uh, uh, from the fatty tissue, the adipose tissue. Uh, I mean, fatty tissue is really a hormone-producing right. nightmare for, for human beings. And uh, one of the many consequences is very low testosterone. So diabetes is more than half of men with diabetes, and I would dare say women, uh, have low testosterone. And is, is re- testosterone replacement helpful for men with diabetes? Hugely important. In fact, uh, testosterone sensitizes insulin. So if anyone's out there who has diabetes and hasn't had their testosterone measured, uh, if it's low and uh, thereby uh, testosterone is a rational treatment plan for this diabetic person, uh, it, it actually lowers the hemoglobin A1C and makes the glucose levels lower, uh, uh, which is, of course, we can actually convert men who have diabetes into men without diabetes by simply giving them testosterone. It's very interesting. Well, that is remarkable. I'm so glad I'm doing this, everything you wanted to know, because <laughs> I'm learning so much from you. It's, it's fascinating. But, you know, uh, diabetes will affect men at a younger age. So we're talking, you know, uh, uh, well, there's a there's kind of diabetes called type 1 diabetes, uh, which is, uh, happens in teenagers and men in their 20s and 30s versus type 2 diabetes, which is typically older men who, who gain too much weight. The, this is, uh, uh, in young men, uh, we, we, we speak of impotence typically at 40, 50, and we forget that, you know, teens and kids in college and kids who just graduate college can have sexual problems. Well, diabetes is certainly one of those ways. Uh, since we want to talk about all things, uh, uh, bicycle riding uh, is uh, and any tell me more about that because I know that's a particular interest of yours. How, how does bicycle riding affect sexual I function? I wouldn't have any radio show without some mention of bicycle riding. Right. Well, because it's so illogic. Uh, uh, we sit in chairs. We know how to bear our body weight. Uh, we have animals that were always upright that learned to be quadrupeds rather than just bipeds. But they learned to, to bear their body weight on their sit bones. God gave us sit bones to bear your body weight on. I, I, I presume you're sitting in a chair right now. I certainly am sitting in a chair. And I'm very comfortable and everything's fine. So you now go ride a bicycle. But you don't sit on your sit bones because current technology dictates you need a Lance Armstrong version seat where, where everything is narrow and you have a long, long nose extension so that you have something between your legs. And you lean very you, much forward, too. Well, and you lean forward so you don't bear your weight on your sit bones. Now you lean your uh, weight and bear it on what's called the ischiopubic ramus. Now, I don't want to technically challenge people, but that's the bone that connects the sit bone to the pubic bone. But the penis and clitoris and all the nerves and arteries to the penis and clitoris sit on that, that, that connector bone. Let's call it the connector bone. So you bury your weight directly on the nerve and artery, which is now crushed between the weight and the bone. It's between a rock and a hard place, really. <laughs> so we get a lot of people who get numbness when they ride. and We even get people who walk in the office and say, gee, I haven't really done a good workout unless I have numbness to my penis. And I say, you are kidding me. Who told you that? No kidding. Yeah, so this is bad stuff. And, and we get kids who, you know, here in, we're in Southern California, and we get kids who are doing all this dirt bike stuff and the... The, uh, they're sort of professionals at a 15-year-old age uh, 
motocross and they go up mountains and they come crashing down in their crotch and right. everybody laughs at this and it's like fun and you know adrenaline releasing but where does that weight fall that falls on the erection tissue the, the penis sticks out of the body but of course for every inch that it sticks out it sticks in and by the way all clitorises are six or seven inches since nothing much sticks out what sticks in in a guy sticks in in a woman uh, so all of that internal organ is being pressured against the bone and causing damage. Does so it ever cause permanent damage, damage, or is it more kind of immediate? Well, I mean, it can be slow, and, and or it, it, one, one bad fall can, can result in, uh, in a permanent erection problem. It can be slow and progressive, and it can be reversible, uh, but we do see a lot of it where it's irreversible. I see. Uh, there's an industry now in all these kind of more comfortable bicycle seats, um, do any of those make a difference? Well, it's interesting because I work with the uh, NIOSH, National Association for Occupation Safety and Health, and this is the arm of OSHA, which is designed to protect all people who work for a living uh, from becoming injured while they work. Well, there are people who ride bikes for a living. <laughs> I mean, among others. Right, couriers. Couriers yes. in particular. But couriers are, are sort of in a lulla land because they don't really have a union. But bicycle riders, uh, police riders, uh, who, who, oh. who are clearly part of a union, have 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 a, an entity of protection. And uh, so studies have been done by NIOSH on uh, policemen who ride bicycles to show that those who ride on these Lance Armstrong seats versus what we are now calling two-cheek seats or, or noseless saddles, those are the sort of phrases we're now using, uh, those who ride on the, the narrow long nose extension pieces have problems with their sexual function in a far greater fashion and problems with feeling in their penises in a greater fashion than those who ride on more wide noseless seats. So those, when you're seeing options for seats, we're really returning to the 50s when those are the only seats available, these <laughs> wide. And if you've ever been to Europe and you watch women who you know, get their wine and their cheese and their bread, and, and, and they sit straight up, and they have these wide, wide seats with springs on the back, they're perfectly fine. That's the way bicycles were meant to be. Right. They're not what we have here in the U.S. That's good. That's good to know. I want to change subjects now, and I want to ask you about a form of sexual dysfunction that I hear much less about, which is premature ejaculation. And I'd like to ask you about, um, you know, what what causes that from a physical standpoint, what causes that from a psychological standpoint? How do you think about that when you see a man with that difficulty? Okay, so uh, among the male sexual dysfunctions, well, let me ask you, Dr. Ed, tell me what is the most common male sexual problem? What is the most common one that I hear about in my practice? Uh, well, in epidemiologic studies. Oh, well, you're testing me now, and I wouldn't know. I, I mean, I'm it's assuming it's erectile ejaculation. It's, it's not most... ejaculatory. It's not erectile dysfunction. It's premature uh -huh. ejaculation. Well, good. I'm glad we're going to talk about it. <laughs> That's why we're talking about it. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we, talk, we don't tend to talk about it because we don't have drugs available for it that are FDA approved, although that's going to change in a heartbeat. Probably in the year 2010 or at least 2011, we'll have FDA approved drugs. In, the, in uh, Europe, there are, F, there are the equivalent FDA called EMEA, approved drugs for premature ejaculation. They have drugs in Mexico and Canada that are approved for premature ejaculation, but not yet currently in our country. Are you so, allowed to tell me what they are, or is that some kind oh, of transgression? Sure, uh, by all means. The, 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 so well, let, me, uh, let me come into what they are by what we think is causing premature ejaculation. 
So, so the brain is really the largest, of course, sexual organ. Right. Uh, even in <laughs> even in very large men, the brain still will increase the surface area of any male organ, uh, <laughs> and it is clearly the most important thing. And in the brain, there are uh, uh, balances between excitation and inhibition at all stages. Yes. I mean, I may wish to pee now, but of course I can't pee because I'm on the radio with you, so I have two opposing forces at all times in my brain, and inhibition wins out if I wish to have the radio uh, interview. So there are people who have the desire to not ejaculate, and the fact is that they have the chemicals to ejaculate, and the inhibition chemicals are not there. So when they are in a sexual event, uh, if they don't have inhibition chemicals, so they will have an ejaculation. It's the same uh, in women. There are women who have, uh, um, let's say, early orgasm. They, they, they're involved in very limited foreplay. They have a very intense orgasm, and they say, that's it for me, I'm done. Uh, uh, or there are women or men who say, I'm not interested in sex. Uh, you may be interested, but I'm not interested. I don't care if I ever have sex again. Those people will have chemicals in their brain that are too inhibitory, uh, and the balance between excitation and inhibition is in favor in, of inhibition. Let's go back to premature ejaculation. We believe it's a chemical imbalance. We, uh, you know, like Parkinson is a chemical imbalance. They don't have dopamine in the substantia nigra. Mm -hmm. uh, we believe probably uh, Alzheimer's is a similar chemical imbalance, although we haven't really uncovered the true chemical imbalance. Depression is clearly a chemical imbalance. We have drugs that raise serotonin that actually treat depression very effectively. So why shouldn't PE or premature ejaculation or HSDD or low sexual interest be an equivalent sort of concept? So we are now developing drugs that change the, that rebalance the imbalance. So we have drugs that uh, will, will, will raise serotonin, which we know to be a known inhibitor, that will hold off on a man's ejaculation. So the approved drug in Europe, which is called dapoxetine, D-A-P-O-X-E-T-E-N-E, -E, an excellent drug, uh, is a drug that rebalances the imbalance in men with premature ejaculation. It's just if you're going to use dapoxetine, it has to be sort of through the computer off-label because it's just not an FDA-approved product here. And is it, is it, does it work effectively as an antidepressant, too, if it's essentially raising no, serotonin? You know, it's very interesting. It actually was developed as an antidepressant, but it turned out to be a poor antidepressant because it has a very quick... It, when we when we speak of drugs, we, we speak of how they enter the bloodstream and how they leave the bloodstream, and that process is called pharmacokinetics, just how the, 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 the drug is processed. So an example like a drug like Prozac, uh, you take it and only reaches its peak levels in the bloodstream four to six hours later and then stays in the bloodstream for about 24 hours. So you can take one Prozac once a day, and it will cover you for antidepressant. Dipoxetine enters the bloodstream really quickly, quickly, and is clear from the bloodstream within, say, an hour or two. So it's it's, it's a fast onset, fast offset drug, which is so perfect for as you're about to have sex, you pop a dipoxetine, and it provides the 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 rebalancing the imbalance, but then it's gone thereafter, and you don't need to take it. Uh, you don't need to have it in your bloodstream when you're not having a sexual event. So it's actually uh, uh, a perfect drug for this kind of concept.
Right. And part of what I'm hearing you say is you're stressing the chemical imbalance because I'm guessing that there's been a real consequence of shaming by thinking that it was someone's psychological hang-up. Sure. Absolutely. Um, and and uh, you don't love the partner. You don't love me enough to control your ejaculation when, when he has absolutely no control over this. Right. I think that's very helpful. Just anything that reduces stigma like that is helpful. I, um, well, there's another product. Cause there's another reason why people think they have premature ejaculation, and that's hypersensitivity of the uh, the sensation. Mm-hmm. So people, when they touch the penis, it's just such a strong sensation that it overwhelms the inhibition aspect in the brain. So uh, there's a drug company that's developing a spray that has local anesthesia and has a specific uh, vehicle in the spray so it dries within like 10 seconds. So there's no chance of transferring the, the numbness agent to the woman's uh, genitals. Right, exactly. <laughs> so this because is a very cool risk. product. We expect it to be out in, in 2010, 2011, and will be an adjunct, of course, to the oral pill. So some people will take both. Some people just do the spray, and some people do uh, just the oral pill. So there's a lot of hope on the horizon for those. We love yeah. hope. That's who we That's really important. Sense. So this is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne. I'm, this is Safe Space. I'm talking to Dr. Erwin Goldstein about sexual dysfunction in men. And I want to end our show tonight by talking to you about prevention and sexual health care. You know, what are things that men can do to, to protect their sexual functioning? What's the best way to look after yourself in this regard? So I would I would say uh, be healthy. Uh, I would say diet and exercise. Except the word exercise here is I would not do bicycle riding exercise. <laughs> I would do almost anything on earth. Right. Do not go to spinning class. Spinning class is bad. I just had a woman here today with uh, spinning induced uh, sexual pain. Horrible story. But but um, uh, horseback uh, riding. What about horseback riding? Um, so let's let's avoid horseback riding in this uh, conversation. So anything where you put weight on your genitalia is probably not a smart thing to do if you enjoy sex. Now the thing about bicycle riding or or horseback riding is if you can limit the time you're on your seat, you could take it on as a sport, or you can do the sport if you have the correct saddle. But diet and exercise and being healthy, not being you know controlling your diabetes uh, as best you can. Uh, don't let blood pressure happen if you do control it at an early age those kinds of things. Now, from the sexual point of view, there's a thing called a penile fracture, which we have to spend two minutes on. Okay. That's where a man is on the bottom, the woman's on top. She's on top because she can angle herself exactly where she wants to make all the contact points make contact. If she is coming down on the organ and misses, and her body weight is 100 pounds, the, the erect phallus is just not designed to withstand the forces of a 100-pound weight coming down on it. And the erect phallus can bend and actually fracture. The, 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 the lining material holding the blood in place actually fractures. Mm, and then that when does it not sound heals, good. It does not sound good. It's called penile fracture. And when it, when it heals, it leads to bending of the penis. And that's called Peyronie's disease. And I'm sure there's many listeners out there who know exactly what I'm talking about who've experienced this crack, snap, pop sound with partner superior intercourse. My statement about remaining healthy would be to be very uh, aware of your surroundings with partner superior activity and move with the partner and not uh, let that happen, at least have communication. So when you're having sexual activity and you're on mind-altering drugs, uh, probably not a great idea. Okay, for so many reasons, I would add. For a thousand reasons. Right. We, I had a, a guest earlier in this series uh, talking about post-prostatectomy um, 
difficulties with erections. And she was recommending Kegels, that male Kegels are really important for erectile um, functioning. And I hadn't heard about that either. She called it raising your flag was her, <laughs> was her term for it. And I'm curious, do you recommend that? What's your experience with that? I'm going to say that a lot of people talk about it, but I'm the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Sexual Medicine. We do it a lot of evidence-based scientific literature, there's zero supporting that concept. So I'm going to have to take uh, the opposite view on that. But has it been studied and be found not to be helpful, or it just hasn't been studied? Well, it's been studied and be found not to be helpful. No benefit Uh, whatsoever from Kegels and erectile function. Okay, so for men. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. That felt hopeful. (laughs) There was something you could do. (laughs) Um, Well, listen, we have to be scientific. That's the story. No, of course, I understand that. Um, And then lastly, I want to talk to you about uh, the role of medications. We just have a minute, but maybe if you could just list some of the really common medications that so many people are taking they may not be aware of because their doctor doesn't bring it up or subject is uncomfortable that may be causing sexual dysfunction that maybe they could find an alternative for. Okay, so the most commonly discussed ones are the antihypertensives, certainly the SSRI antidepressants, uh, any of the antipsychotic drugs. But I don't want to go there. I want to go to people who are troubled by hair loss and are taking a drug called Propecia or Finasteride or Avidart to maintain hair. Uh, any drug that adversely affects one's hormones, and this is how these products work, they, they stop the production mm-hmm. or the synthesis of a product called dihydrotestosterone, a very critical hormone in a man. They're begging for, for trouble. Uh, uh, we see uh, probably in one week I'll see more than 10 men who have propecia or finasteride-induced sexual problems. It is not a good drug. So get over your problems. vanity about your hair if you want to have a good sex life, in other words. Or don't get on drugs that affect your hormones. For women, the, the, the exact parallel would be birth control pills because they adversely affect hormones in women, causing a lot of women to have sexual problems. Dr. Goldstein, thank you so much for being my <laughs> guest on Safe Space. It's been an enlightening and a pleasure. And, and I, I, let me add, let me just... Take you where you have to be. You you really need to be honored for putting this on the air. Talking about sex is is, is a godsend. Uh, this is it's just not discussed at school, not discussed in, in religion. It's not discussed with your clergy. It's not discussed with your parents. It's 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 sad. So God bless you. <laughs> Thank you so much. All right. Thank have you. a great day. So this is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anna Safe Space. That was Dr. Erwin Goldstein, director of sexual medicine at the University of California in San Diego. Uh, Coming up next is Allison with Money Talks.